Hello friends, Adrian here. Welcome back to the Waking Cosmos podcast, where we explore the nature of consciousness, reality, and life's place in the universe. In today's episode, I'm talking to Dr. Garrett Modell. He's a physicist at the University of Colorado, where he has tenure, and among other things, teaches a class on psi phenomena, which, as you may know, is kind of a more neutral term for extrasensory perception. Garrett has carried out experiments looking at effects like telepathy, mind-matter interaction, and precognition. And today he's going to be talking to me about some of the scientific evidence of these effects and what it could mean for our understanding of the mind. For a number of years, Garrett was president of the Society for Scientific Exploration, and it was actually at one of their conferences where I first met Garrett. And by the way, if you haven't heard of the SSE conference... I highly recommend checking it out. It's a conference specifically focused on anomalies and scientific open-mindedness. And for me, it's been really the place to go to stay up to date on the latest sci research. Uh, if you find today's subjects interesting, Garrett will be presenting his ideas at this year's SSE conference, which is going to be held in Vegas on the 6th to the 10th of June. And I'll put a link to that in the description. Garrett is a fascinating guy, as you'll soon find out. He's uh, pretty active in mind-matter interaction research, and he has some very interesting ideas about how psi works, which are genuinely shaking things up in the world of psi research. Before we jump into today's conversation, let me very briefly thank those of you who are supporting Waking Cosmos through our Patreon. I really appreciate your support. You're helping me build something here that I'm truly passionate about. So thank you. Uh, if you're not already, Patreon is the best way to support us and other online creators. So if you're feeling generous, you can throw us a couple of dollars each month through the link in the description. And for those of you who are already supporting, again, thank you for believing in Waking Cosmos. Okay, my friends, without further delay, I give you the brilliant mind of physicist Dr. Garrett Modell. Garrett, great to be with you. Thank you for spending some time with me today. It's a pleasure. Garrett, you're a highly qualified physicist, a professor. You're obviously a real scientist. <laughs> How did you end up getting mixed up in topics like telepathy and mind-matter interaction? Um, accidentally. Uh, I was on sabbatical. Uh, this was in 1999. And uh, one of the universities I was visiting, uh, there was a quantum theorist who on his website had written parapsychology. And I thought that was very strange. So I contacted him. And to make a long story short, I spent the rest of my sabbatical going through his library on the subject. And I was blown away to find out that there was actually high-quality science that had been done on the subject. I didn't think that was the case. And so when, then when I came back to uh, my work in, in Colorado, I looked up organizations that were involved in this and uh, then eventually became a member of the Society for Scientific Exploration and the Parapsychological Association and got very involved in this. Uh, then, in addition to doing a little bit of my own research, I started teaching a class at the university called Edges of Science, which deals with the science behind psychic phenomena. And uh, surprisingly, perhaps, the university is letting me teach this course. 
and it's 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 a rigorous course and, and keeps me excited about the field. How did that come about? Did you experience much pushback from the university? I mean, these are still quite controversial subjects, right? True. Uh, so what I did is when I first proposed the class, I proposed it to fulfill a requirement uh, in arts and sciences called critical thinking. And in order to fulfill that requirement, I had to get approval by a committee in uh, the Arts and Sciences College. And so I put together a whole proposal uh, with course description and so on. And it really is a, a, a rigorous course in which we go through maverick science, different ways that maverick science takes a while to become accepted and what the general public responds, how the general public responds to it. I uh, put on the syllabus a quick background in the philosophy of science and the idea of Kuhn's revolutions and so on. Mm. And then uh, rigorous readings of the basic primary material in parapsychology along with uh, some books that summarized it. And then also the course includes a major research project, which counts for half the grade. And uh, some of those projects have uh, subsequently been published. So I put that all together in a syllabus and submitted it to this committee. Uh, They asked a few questions back and forth, which I answered. And then finally, the chair of the committee sheepishly sent me an email saying, uh, would you mind sending us a resume? Uh, <laughs> they wanted to see that I was legitimately a scientist. Uh, and so I sent them a resume. I've, I've graduated from big name universities and done uh, research and published quite a bit. And this is at the university that you're already teaching at, asking you for a resume. That's right. And he said, we've never done this before. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so in the end of it, they accepted it. And I, I give them credit for that. Yeah. So the results of your students, do they tend to be interesting? Do they uh, confirm the literature? They do. So uh, as I hope we'll discuss, getting positive results in parapsychological experiments is not a given. Uh, and there there are several factors that that tend to Uh, uh, mitigate the effects that we're looking for. However, students, uh, particularly undergrads working on this, uh, have several factors in their favor, and that is enthusiasm and essentially the fact that they're doing this first time. And those tend to give positive results. So actually, I'd say roughly half the experiments give uh, notably positive results which is probably more than the factor that's found in the literature in general. Right. And because you're encouraging your students to publish regardless of their results, I I don't suppose there's any room for a publication bias there either. I hope not. I hope not. Really, the only criterion that I have with regard to publishing is whether it was high-quality work. Did Did they do the statistics right? Did they get a large sample size? Was double blinding appropriate? And of course, did they get approval by our university internal review board? So before we go too much further here, I don't want to assume too much knowledge about what PSI is of our audience. 
so maybe you could say something about the existing Psy research that's out there and uh, maybe something about the strength of the evidence. To your mind, is there still ambiguity about whether these effects actually exist? Okay, so there's a long answer and a short answer. I'll, I'll, you, you, You've got all, all the time in the world. Uh, you, you, I'll give you an answer and you decide what you, what you want to, uh, where you okay. want to push me here. So first of all, psi is usually defined as consisting of two types of phenomena. One is extrasensory perception, ESP, and the other is psychokinesis, PK. So extrasensory perception consists of, loosely, telepathy, that is uh, conveying ideas from one mind to another, clairvoyance, which is the ability to see or actually sense with other senses beside vision, objects or events at a distance or that are hidden. And the third one is precognition, which is knowledge of things in advance of their occurring. So those are the three parts of ESP. And then psychokinesis, which is sometimes called telekinesis, uh, is being able to move objects or affect objects at a distance. If you want to dig a little deeper, there are really two types of psychokinesis, micro-psychokinesis and macro. And in my mind, they differ substantially. Uh, Micro-psychokinesis involves no transfer of energy, and it seems to work just by a transfer of information, whereas macro-psychokinesis is the sort of poltergeist stuff that, that, that you see in movies and so on in which uh, big objects move. So those are the general classes of phenomena. In terms of evidence for them, until J.B. Ryan worked on this in the early 20th century, it was largely carried out, experimentation in this was largely carried out informally and a lot of the evidence was anecdotal. One can argue whether that anecdotal evidence is convincing or not, but what Ryan did is he brought it into the laboratory, and he started using the relatively new field of statistical inference in order to analyze his data, and he was a very rigorous scientist. Uh, if you look in descriptions of him, there are sometimes complaints that, oh, there was this cheating or, or that didn't work, but if you look more closely, you'll find out that he was the first person to mention uh, if he ever saw any cheating in his lab. And so he, he, was, he was very careful. So that was the beginning of laboratory parapsychology. It's my understanding that the uh, field of parapsychology actually contributed quite a lot to the development of the science of statistics. Is that right? Uh, I believe so. I'm, I'm not an expert in statistics, but I have heard that as well. So the evidence has built up. Generally, the effects that one sees in a laboratory are smaller than the effects that one sees in everyday life. And there's something about bringing it into a laboratory. It's an unnatural circumstance, which tends to reduce effect size. On the other hand, because you are in a laboratory, you can do double and triple blinded studies and you can use rigorous procedures and statistical methods. And so that allows for finding out if effects are statistically significant 
in a way that you can't do very easily with anecdotal evidence. And so the question you ask is, is this established or is it still a question as to whether it exists? When I started off teaching my course, Edges of Science, the way that I set it up was as a series of debates in which the class was divided at each session into three groups. One group were proponents for the, various, for the particular effect that we were looking at at the, at the time. The second group were skeptics, and the third group were questioners or judges. And so we would have a series of, of debates as to whether a particular phenomenon existed or not and whether the evidence for it was sound. As I've taught this over the years, I've now stopped using that technique simply because the evidence is overwhelming. It's a false approach from my perspective. It's, it's inappropriate to debate this. It's like uh, having a class in physics and debating whether Newton's laws actually are correct or not. When you were splitting the class in this way to debate the evidence, out of interest, were people separating themselves into these groups, or did you sort of randomly decide who was going to be criticizing and who was going to be advocating? Usually they separated themselves. Interesting. And if there weren't enough people in one group or another, I would then pull them into that group. So it was done on an ad hoc basis every day. But at this point, you don't do that because the evidence is speaking for itself? I can't pretend that the evidence isn't convincing. I think yeah. it speaks for itself, yes. And as you say, the students' results of their independent studies tends to confirm what we see in the literature. So that's an interesting uh, reproduction. I don't know of any other schools that actually teach this material. Uh, of course, with the exception of the university in the UK that I studied at, which actually had a functioning parapsychology department. I think most universities uh, that do teach anything about parapsychology teach it in the context of being able to identify bad science, which, of course, as you know, it's not. Uh, and often there's very little understanding of what uh, the research actually is. Uh, so it's very rare to see anything like what you're doing. What would you uh, recommend to students or young people who would like to learn about this and maybe even uh, pursue a career in this? Uh, is there a way that we can advocate getting into this field without booming people to a marginalized existence on the edges of science? Well, you've asked the question in the right way. Um, don't go into this field. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I need to explain that. Uh, certainly, this is a fascinating field, and I think that people should be studying it, and there's a huge amount that's unexplained yet and that we need to uncover, and it's absolutely fascinating. However, from a career perspective, do something else as well. You can do this on the side, or you can do it when you're established. But uh, as you might imagine, if somebody starts off with this as a career, and let's say they want to go to an academic position, there's no way they'll be accepted anywhere except very, very few universities, one being in the UK, as you know of. So I, I do not recommend it. Unfortunately, <laughs> when you look at the attendees at these conferences, 
that discuss this stuff, uh, there's a lot of gray hair. And the reason is that many people don't really get involved in this sort of research until they're already well-established in another field and they're no longer vulnerable. Uh, we had a case recently where a young academic wanted to run a conference in the Society for Scientific Exploration and set it all up and was ready to do it at his university and was strongly warned not to do it, that it would have major negative impacts on his career. And so he had to pull out. That's really unfortunate. So shifting gears a little bit here, what do you think is the value of quantum mechanics for thinking about psi phenomena? I understand that Dean Radin's book, Entangled Minds, is on your students' reading list. Is that still the case? Yes, it is. Um, okay, so there are several ways to invoke quantum mechanics in this. One which I think is illegitimate and one which is more legitimate. Hmm. Uh, to me, the illegitimate way is to make a model that uses quantum mechanical phenomena to explain what we see in psi. There are a lot of similarities between quantum mechanics and psi. They both appear to be stochastic or statistical in nature. Uh, things don't happen all the time. They happen sometimes and not other times. There appears to be spooky at it, action at a distance, as Einstein called it, because distant uh, systems or people uh, seem to be correlated. And there appear to be observer effects, that is, when you observe something, it seems to change, which is the same as in quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of similarities, but I think it's dangerous to try to make a, quant a quantitative model using quantum mechanics at this point, because unless you can test that model and prove that it is right or wrong, it provides no value. I think the w correct way to think about quantum mechanics here is to say that, yes, there are these similarities, and it allows us to think about these psi phenomena in a different way. Yeah, I suppose in principle, at the very least, quantum entanglement shows that reality can support non-local interconnectedness, at least at some level, which, as you say, seems to be characteristic of psi effects. So... There are a number of different studies uh, and different types of studies that provide robust re results and strong evidence for psi. One group that I find quite compelling is the effects of clairvoyance, which has been codified into a technique called remote viewing. So as many of you probably know, the government had a secret program in remote viewing uh, during the late 20th century, and they developed this into a, a very rigorous technique. The way that it works is that a tasker tells the remote viewers who are trained people who carry out this procedure, he tasks them to draw or otherwise describe a particular object. And the object can be designated in an arbitrary way. It doesn't really matter. You can give spatial coordinates for it. You can just call it object one, two, three. And as long as the tasker knows that object one, two, three refers to something that's hidden in one way or another, uh, that's good enough. 
then the remote viewer draws this object. And the process is, is a pretty rigorous one in which the viewer throws out analytical overlay information that may be in their mind and instead draws what seems to be unexpected or what is not part of uh, some sort of a analytical description of what they think they might be seeing. And so this process has been developed. Um, one of the original Stargate remote viewers, Paul Smith, has come to my class a number of times to teach remote viewing to my students. The results that you get from this process are amazing. It's not that hard to do low-level remote viewing, where you're given something that you're supposed to draw, then you draw it, and it has, and what you've drawn shows some semblance or some resemblance to, to the actual object. To do it really well requires a, a lot of training. And uh, these guys who are trained in, by the government are, are, can do it much better than I. And each trial is independently judged, right? Someone uh, draws their impressions of the target, and that's compared between different possible targets by a judge who presumably doesn't know which one is the target until it's revealed at the end of the experiment. Is that generally what it's done? Is the, the judge is blinded, correct? It should happen. It doesn't always. If you look up remote viewing on YouTube, you'll come across a couple of videos made by Shermer, who is a, a well-known skeptic. Michael Shermer, right? Michael Shermer. And what he did is he found a very poor remote viewing session and videoed it. And in this remote viewing session, uh, the tasker, after tasking the, the remote viewing, looks at the images with the viewers. And roughly the tasker says, oh, you've got something round here. And the real object has something round. Oh, isn't that good? Or, you know, and, and points out superficial similarities between uh, what the remote viewer has drawn and the correct object. And right. that's not the way to do it. Just as you suggested, if you want to do it, test it rigorously. So a standard way of testing it, for example, is to have four possible target images. The uh, remote viewer is then tasked to draw just one of these images. Then the drawings from the remote viewer are given to a judge who has no idea which the correct image was and is given these drawings and the four possible images that the remote viewer might have been tasked to draw. The judge then uh, decides which of the four images the one that's drawn is closest to. And as you can imagine, the odds of being correct by chance are 25%. And so if after doing this uh, a number of times, you find that the remote viewer and judge together pick the correct image significantly more than 25% of the time, then we have statistical evidence in favor of remote viewing. Now, that is uh, the way to do it scientifically. But human beings are not usually convinced on an emotional level by scientific evidence, by statistical mm -hmm. evidence. Uh, what I found compelling for me initially when I started this was the statistical evidence. 
But then when I actually did it, that's when I just felt it and could feel it was right. For example, one day Paul Smith brought in a closed box and told us to draw what was in it, everybody in my class. And so I just got the notion of a, a wishbone shaped something. So I just drew a wishbone shape on my paper. Then I got the feeling of, or the sense of a coil. So I drew, drew something that looked coiled. And then I got a sense of something hard and shiny and straight. So I drew a, a hard, shiny, straight thing. And I just had, that was the only three things that I put on my paper. Then uh, he opened the box and it was a potato masher. And so the coil was the masher part, the uh, wishbone was the part that held it, and then the straight part was the handle. And I was blown away. I, I, I couldn't believe that I'd actually done it. And people in my class varied from getting no effect whatsoever to one uh, young lady who drew a potato masher. And when he pulled it out of the box, she freaked out. She was just uh, screaming. She couldn't believe she'd done it. It's a weird object as well. It's not among the household objects that readily spring to mind. I wouldn't have thought it would be in, among the first hundred things that you'd guess. Oh, we had absolutely no idea. And so when you actually experience it, that brings it to another level. So I, we could go on for a long time discussing the evidence for remote viewing, but it's very, very robust. I hadn't realized quite how similar the classic remote viewing experiment is to the Gansfeld telepathy experiments. They're set up in quite a similar way. You've got the session, four possible targets generally, and then there's an independent judging phase. They're quite similar, really. There is. The di a big difference is that, as, as you know, the Gansfeld could be more of a telepathic effect rather than mm. a, a clairvoyance effect. And one of the cool things about remote viewing is that we can learn things that we didn't, didn't know. We can learn about what an object is somewhere where nobody knows what was there. Or we can learn about an object in the future that, again, nobody knows about in, in the present. I understand that remote viewing a target has sometimes been uh, confused by the fact that the remote viewer seems to be producing information about a target location, uh, but as it existed 20 years ago. Right, right. There, there have been some interesting studies. My class, just on a, very briefly, did one study where we used a particular remote viewing technique called associative remote viewing to predict whether the Dow Jones Industrial Average was going to go up or down the next day. And there were the seven... The stock market, right? The stock market. And so we did this uh, seven days in a row, which were the number of days left in the class that semester, and we got it right seven days in a row. And uh, one fellow and I actually invested based on this, and we made uh, $25,000. What did you put in? Uh, we each put in $5,000. Hmm. And it ended up at $35,000. So it works. Doing this long term is, is another matter, which perhaps we'll get into when we talk about decline effects and so on. Garrett, I'd love to get your thoughts about mind-matter interaction. I know that this is an area that you thought a lot about and uh, conducted your own experiments as well. And 
I also know that you've got quite an interesting alternative take on the Global Consciousness Project, which is kind of a global mind-matter interaction experiment. As I said, I'd really like to get your thoughts on that, but I think we ought to first bring people up to speed with how mind-matter interaction research got to its current stage, particularly looking at random number generators. So maybe you could give a little summary of that research and how it's developed over the years to where it's at now. Would it be fair to say that this originated with Helmut Schmidt? Yes. So Helmut Schmidt was a physicist who developed the first electronic random number generator based on a quantum random phenomenon and used it for psi studies. And in my mind, his work is brilliant and is insightful even to this day. He started in the 1970s and and worked through the early 2000s. So his electronic random number generator would spew out uh, zeros and ones, and the sequence was random, truly random. As I mentioned, he used a quantum phenomenon. For example, if you take a common smoke detector uh, that we have in our houses these days, The way that the smoke detector work involves the emission uh, from a material of some high-energy particles. And that emission is a random process. You don't know precisely when the material is going to emit those particles. And so if you then take that emission process with, with an unknown timing and you use it, for example, let's say that you create a square wave Uh, electronically. So a square wave is literally a wave that looks like a series of squares uh, in time. And you use this random process to signal whether at a given moment you're going to use the up part of the square wave or the down part of the square wave. From that, you can then build a one or a zero as an output, which is genuinely, truly random. So it's a truly random quantum event, and yet it seems that ordinary people can seemingly influence it simply by directing their minds or their intention toward it. Let's, let's get there slowly. I think, although it may sound a little bit uh, too detail-oriented to discuss how the random number generator works, uh, this is going to be important for, for something I'd like to say in a little while. Absolutely, please. So one of the issues with this a random number generator is that its output is not necessarily always precisely an equal number of zeros and ones. And it can be affected by aging of the source or by temperature variations and so on. Also, uh, modern random number generators tend to use thermal randomness rather than quantum decay randomness. Which And, and it's, the randomness is still good and it's still just as as genuinely random. So in order to even the output, to make sure that you've got an equal number of zeros and ones, the output is logically XORed. So XOR is a a, a logic gate. I I won't go through the details unless you're interested, but by XORing the output of the random process with another square wave, you end up with an output that truly has 
statistically an equal number of zeros and ones. And that's what's right. used as the output for carrying on various processes. So what are these things used for in psi research? A very simple way to use them, for example, is to look at whether you've got an excess of zeros or ones. Now, you know that uh, since it's random, you shouldn't have an excess of either of these. But if you can use your intention to vary the output, then you will see a deviation from a perfect balance. And you can run this through a, a simple computer program, which then displays on a screen, for example, a line that moves up and down. And this line might move up if you get more ones and move down if you get more zeros. Hmm. Then uh, the subject may be asked, use your intention to make uh, the line go up or use your intention to make the line go down. And from the early days of Helmut Schmidt on through a huge number of studies carried out by the Pear Lab, the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab in Princeton, it's been found that subjects can, in fact, statistically vary the output of this uh, random number generator. And it's not that hard. Most people have some sort of an effect. Some people have a very robust effect. So one can use this electronic random number generator in other ways, not just simply trying to uh, make the output go up or down. And uh, there are various sorts of studies that, that have been carried out. So with the Global Consciousness Project, which is uh, run by Roger Nelson in Princeton, the basic idea is to collect the data from random number generators that are running continuously around the world. Am I right in thinking that prior to that research, there were something there was something called the field reg studies, which is when they when they realised that there was an ambient effect of these REGs, not only when people were directing their intention towards them, but the REG seemed to respond ambiently to shifts in attention or resonant peaks in right, thoughts. Right, and so uh, in, in a field reg experiment, as you're, as you're describing, you might put a random number generator or Princeton called it random event generators, and that's why it's REG rather than RNG. Same thing, though. Uh, so you can put this random number generator into, say, a concert hall, and at times where the music is particularly engaging and the audience is quite enthralled with it, the sequence of bits tends to go to deviate farther from randomness. It seems to show some sort of coherence at these points in time. And afterwards, uh, the uh, experimenter, for example, can compare the uh, randomness as a function of time and compare it to the concert. And uh, perhaps one might even have people in the concert writing down at various times where, where they found the music to be particularly engaging. And you can, there are some studies where this was done at a baseball game and in a movie theater and so on. And you, you really do see some sort of effect which apparently shows some sort of a collective effect from multiple people being engaged in something. I understand that correspondingly to that, there's also um, 
experiments when they put the REG in a situation where it was like a business meeting where people were generally not engaged or thinking about different things and there wasn't much departure from entropy or randomness. Right. You know, it would be interesting to do to take this and put it in uh, university classrooms. I think a lot of professors <laughs> would be quite insulted to find that students were not engaged during much of the not lecture. Not classes, I'm sure. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> and so that eventually led to uh, the idea that, you know, perhaps we could gauge the collective shifts in attention of the entire population. Right. This has been used over the years and uh, Roger and his Roger Nelson and his associates have looked at this data. And typically, the way that they analyze the data is they think of some event at which they think there w should be some attention paid by a large fraction of the world. For example, during Academy Award ceremonies, and then look for some deviation for all of these signals that have been collected from around the world, look for deviations in those signals from randomness during these events. They have found that there are statistically significant deviations. They've then looked at other events that uh, occurred unexpectedly, for example, the death of Princess Di, uh, mm. or Another one that gave them the biggest effect was uh, the 9-11 uh, bombings. So these effects were then post hoc analyzed, that is, after the, after the fact, analyzed to see if there were deviations from randomness. And they found uh, significant deviations, and the more impactful the event was, the larger the deviations were. All of this data is available on the website of the Global Consciousness Project. And so if you think they've been cherry picking or selective in their data analysis, you can go in and do the analysis yourself to make sure that, that, that they're doing it honestly. I think they've got quite a strict criteria for what counts as an, an event and what counts as something that we might expect to see right. an effect. And as you say, the 9-11 uh, the event was precisely the kind of event that you would expect this to be the kind of archetypal occasion for this network of REGs all around the planet to respond. And in fact, that is exactly what they saw. I think Dean Radin carried out an independent analysis and found that the RNGs had a higher intercorrelation value on that day than any other day that year. And intercorrelation here meaning that the RNGs were acting in a far more synchronized way than usual. And of course, they're not actually connected to each other, although they do send all of their data back to Princeton. Right. And if you look at this data with any degree of objectivity, I think it's hard to say that there's nothing there. There really is an effect. Roger Nelson worked with a colleague, Peter Bansell, for a number of years who did statistical analysis along with him to, to make sure that this really did show what in fact it was purported to show. And there is definitely an effect. However, I have an argument against the conventional view of this, and I'm not convinced that it shows exactly 
what uh, Roger thinks it does. Exactly. So before we uh, jump into that, what is, uh, I guess, the traditional interpretation of the Global Consciousness Project? Perhaps I can summarize it and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But so in some fashion, mind introduces order into the world in a way that is not currently understood or uh, explained in conventional thinking about minds. And yet there seems to be a participation between our minds and the world. And the introduction of this order is what these instruments are picking up. And so at a global level, just as you say, collective shifts in thought or uh, resonant peaks of attention ought to affect a network of these devices all around the planet. But you have a different interpretation to all this, right? Right. And this, this gets into a whole new area. So there is one phenomenon that has been found virtually everywhere in psi research. And this ubiquitous effect is called the experimenter effect. Mm. When one carries out a psi experiment, one would like to have, say, the subjects control a random number generator, or the subjects uh, be involved in a particular telepathic or precognitive process. However, there is not only the intention of the subject that is in operation, but also the experimenter. And so the experimenter tends to have a very significant and sometimes even dominant effect on the results of the experiment. This leads to the very difficult situation that people who want to run an experiment but are dead set in believing that psi does not exist tend to get null results because their intention, presumably, is to show that there's nothing there, and that's borne out. And as you might expect, if you were to design how psi worked, uh, you'd expect there to be an experimenter effect, and so there is. And so uh, some experimenters tend to get uh, positive results almost all the time, and some tend to get poor results. Also, as the experimenter's attitude changes, the results can change. And uh, this has been shown not only in individual experiments, but even in experiments in which a skeptic and a proponent alternatively directed a particular experiment. And the proponent got positive results, the, the skeptic got null results. So it's observed all the time. The question then comes as to how this might affect the Global Consciousness Project. And several people have said that they believe there's a strong experimenter effect. One of the earlier people to say this was Helmut Schmidt, the same person who developed the electronic random number generator for uh, psi experiments. And so before he died, uh, he wrote a letter to the Journal of Scientific Exploration saying, wait a minute, this, this effect, this global consciousness, has all of the characteristics of an experimenter effect in which Roger Nelson is seeing what he expects. And so how do we know that there is a, a global consciousness that's really directing what's happening? Then, over the last few years, Roger's associate, Peter Bansell, has published 
several papers in which he's analyzed this to great depth. And one of the characteristics of the experiment that he brings up is the mode of operation for these electronic random number generators. So if you go back to what we were saying a little bit earlier in this conversation, what you see as an output from the electronic random number generator is not the pure effect of the random process. In fact, it has been manipulated by the logical XOR gate right. that produces then an equal number of zeros and ones. And so what Peter Bansell said is that if it were simply some sort of a coherence effect from global consciousness around the world, that might cause uh, some sort of a coherence for the output of whatever the random process was using in the random event generators or random number generators. But once you took that random process and crunched it, uh, with this additional process, that would destroy the uh, basic randomness. And so what you'd have is some sort of a manufactured output that no longer reflected that initial coherence. So he said the only way that this could actually be working is if Roger or some other experimenter, if their intention were then driving the uh, random number generators such that he wanted to see a particular output. And so that output then was, uh, even through this process of uh, being crunched, ended up giving him the effect that he wanted to see. So I, I don't know if, if, if my explanation uh, made sense to you. So to be clear, we're still talking about a psi effect here, but it's not the classical interpretation. And yeah, I suppose uh, this is crediting Roger's mind with more power than maybe he'd be happy to admit. How have you, uh, how has uh, Roger responded to these criticisms? Does he agree with these interpretations? I have spoken to him about it. Um, he, he, no, he disagrees with it. And so there have been a series of little debates between Peter and Roger in the press. Uh, one was in the Journal of Scientific Exploration. Another was in the Journal uh, explore. And so they're, they're going back and forth to say, uh, no, this looks like an experimenter effect, or it doesn't look like an experimenter effect because it has other characteristics. So uh, this has been going on. As you say, either way, it's a psi effect. It's either a psi effect from Roger's consciousness or from sort of a global consciousness. Could the reach of it go further than that? Could it be, for example, my expectation that that would be the sort of data that the Global Consciousness Project ought to create in the kind of retrospective sense. So yes and no. You're saying that you as an observer, could you also retroactively be causing some sort of effect on this? Yeah. Uh, Helmut Schmidt did uh, some studies on this, and he did some fascinating studies. Uh, well, here I'll describe one of his experiments. Please. So he took a random number generator and had it produce random clicks separated into either a left channel or a right channel, which were then played through headphones to a subject. The subject 
was then asked to use his or her intention to produce more clicks on the right side for a certain period of time and then more clicks on the left side for a certain period of time. And the subject was able to do this. So this was a, a somewhat conventional a psychokinesis effect where the subject is affecting the random number generators to produce clicks as desired on the right or left. Okay. Then Helmut Schmidt uh, did another series of experiments where he used this same type of random number generator to produce clicks on the left or right channel of a stereo tape. This is in the days of tape recorders. And, uh, and he, so he recorded this. And he, so he recorded it for several known periods of time. Nobody listened when he was recording it to whether there were clicks on the left or right. It was simply recorded. He then made a duplicate of that tape, or those tapes, and stored them in a safe place. Uh, then he uh, had subjects play the tape and listen to clicks that were being produced by the stereo recording and see whether it was on the left or right channel. And the subjects had to, according to uh, the protocol that they were told to follow, will there to be more clicks on the left or on the right. And they were able to do it again, uh, just as well as they'd been able to do it when the clicks were being produced in real time. So somehow their intention was reaching out across time as well as space and having uh, some kind of influence on the output of that system as it had ran in the past. Right. And we can go into more depth as to how that works. And here we will get quantum mechanical. In addition to what the experiment I just described, Helmut Schmidt then went and looked at the tapes that had been stored that were copies of the original. And he found that those tapes that had been stored also showed the same sequences of more clicks on the left or more clicks on the right when this, in response to the subject's desire. So apparently, the subject retrocausally changed not only the uh, tape that he or she was listening to, but also the copy of it. That's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. So you asked the question with the Global Consciousness Project as to whether you, as an observer of the data later, might have an effect on it. So what uh, Helmut Schmidt did is he extended this uh, experiment to have different people look at the recordings at different times. And what he found was the first person who examined the recording. So for example, the subject who listened to it and willed clicks to be on the left or right was the person who had the, the most dramatic effect on this pre-recorded set of clicks. Subsequent examinations by other people had less or zero effect on the recordings. So if we then take a look at the Global Consciousness Project and ask who would be having the most effect on it, presumably, if there is an experimenter effect, it's the first people who are looking at the data. And so you and I 
looking at the data after it's been published and so on are likely to have a negligible effect on the data. And so the comparison here with quantum mechanics is that when we observe or uh, measure a system, we not only resolve the state of the system in that moment, but that we, uh, but we also define how it behaved at previous junctions. And so there's this facet of quantum mechanics where we are in some sense resolving events as they occurred in the past. Right. Let me put it a different way. When you have a quantum mechanical event occurring at some uh, random time or so involving some sort of a random process. And the classical case for this is Schrodinger's cat. But when you have uh, that sort of a quantum mechanical process, usually the result exists in a superposition of states. It is not defined, but instead you have all the different possibilities of the outcome for a particular process. And those possibilities all exist at once. Then, uh, at some point, when the event takes place or when it's observed, those different superposition of states, in the vernacular, there's a collapse of the wave function. Uh, so mm. those particular states end up with a single result. So in looking at these experiments that uh, Helmut Schmidt did with the pre-recorded clicks, you could say in one sense that those pre-recorded clicks were manipulated backwards in time by the person listening to them subsequently, or you could say that those recordings existed in a superposition of different states, and so the person listening to them subsequently was not really reaching back in time, but was affecting instead that superposition of states as they existed in real time when he or she was listening to them. And mm. it's indistinguishable. You cannot tell the difference between reaching back in time or affecting a superposition now. So, uh, I mean, let's say that there's uh, this effect, there's a relationship between mind and world, which is being shown in these experiments. And maybe it's a different interpretation to the standard one. But where does that lead you in thinking about the place of mind in the world? Is it a reflection of something that's fundamental in some way? Because it seems to me that for a mental intention to have any kind of causal currency in the world, for there to be this psychological correspondence, it seems to necessitate that the world itself has a kind of mental aspect. Is this a form of idealism or panpsychism that's being sort of subtly proposed with this theory? So for years, I really didn't like what you just said. Uh, <laughs> I came from a traditional physics background, and I was very much a materialist. And my initial psi work in theory and experiment was aimed to show how these psi phenomena could be explained through some sort of a physical process, perhaps not a conventional physical process, but something that was materialistic in origin. Perhaps information or something. 
perhaps information. And so, for example, uh, one experiment that I carried out involved using two electronic random number generators. And in order to explain this experiment, I need to describe first an earlier experiment carried out by some prominent researchers in, in the field. Go for it. So two researchers, Spottiswood and May, carried out an experiment in which they took a subject and put a loud electronic horn facing this subject. They then had an electronic random number generator determine where this, when this horn would sound at random times. And as you can imagine, the subject was quite irritated when the horn did sound. The subject was also hooked up to a computer using uh, various sorts of measures, one of the main ones being a galvanic skin response measure. And so that consists of two uh, conducting pads that are placed on the skin of the subject, and they measure a change in the conductivity of the skin. And it turns out that the uh, conductivity of the skin varies very quickly, in, in, in fractions of a second, when we're under some sort of emotional stress. Probably it's something having to do with sweat glands e emitting some moisture very quickly. Mm. And as you would expect, when the horn went off, the galvanic skin response of these subjects went haywire because they were, they were emotionally stimulated by the horn. Right. However, if you looked carefully, you would then see that the uh, response, the galvanic skin response, started a couple of seconds before the horn went off even though the horn went off at random times. And when the horn didn't go off, there was no pre-response. And the person wasn't consciously aware that the horn was about to go off uh, before it did, but somehow their physiological arousal was responding in advance. That's right, exactly. And uh, this was a fairly robust experiment. It's been carried out uh, now by different researchers a number of different times. There are different interpretations of it, but no matter how you, in, how you interpret it, the, the fact is that there was a galvanic skin response uh, in advance of what appears to be a, a random sounding of the horn. Extraordinary. So for years, as I mentioned, I didn't like the idea of Psy being this consciousness effect, and it sounded a little bit too woo-woo and new agey to me. And so finally it occurred to me uh, how I could test this in a non-human system. And so I commissioned Cyleron, which is a company that makes uh, electronic random number generators, to make for me a particular system. And the system consists of uh, two electronic random number generators. One I'll call the um, controller and the second one, the subject. And so the controller random number generator would, at a random time, turn off the subject random number generator. All the while this was happening, the output of the subject random number generator 
would be recorded by a computer. And what I wanted to do was replicate something like this experiment of Spottiswood and May and see not whether the subject could anticipate uh, a horn going off, but in this case, whether the subject random number generator could anticipate its own demise and whether the bits that it was spewing out would deviate from randomness a few seconds before it was shut off. So we set this up. A grad student of mine, James Zhu, uh, did a lot of work on the software, and he was very good at this and very rigorous. And I remember the first set of 300 trials. The nice thing about this system is that uh, it can just run day and night and put it, give out as much data as you want. It doesn't get tired the way that humans would. Mm-hmm. And the first set of 300 trials were mind-blowing. They showed a strong deviation from randomness about one second before the subject random number generator was shut off. So just prior to the one of the REGs, which was being controlled by the other one, just prior to it being turned off, it had a stress response of some description? <laughs> That's one way of describing it. It had a stress response. And wow. it uh, normally in these psychokinesis effects, the effects are fairly small. You see one part change in 10,000, so part in 10 to the 4. And that, and if you do enough statistics, if you do it often enough, you'll see a, a statistically significant psychokinesis effect. In our studies, we had a, an effect size that was 1 in 40. So it was huge. So we got really excited. I, I remember not sleeping that night. I was just thinking that I've finally been able to get rid of these sentient bags of salt water and have a psi <laughs> experiment that just uses electronic random number generators. And the effect is huge. And the effect was huge. And I thought, okay, not only is this going to be good for explaining what's happening in these in these and, and doing some good science, but also we can use this. For example, if you can anticipate something a, a second before it's going to happen, just imagine playing the stock market using this or, or anything. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we ran it uh, uh, more times, a thousand times, and the effect just continued. And odds against chance were were humongous. They were they were astronomical. And just to be clear, the, both of the REGs are shielded from all kinds of ordinary environmental stimulus. Totally there's shielded. no electrical surges. No. no. And in fact, to begin with, we wanted to try to use an, elect- uh, an electromagnetic pulse rather than shutting off the electronic random number generator. We tried to use an electromagnetic pulse to affect it. But Cyleron builds their devices too well, and they were just so well shielded, we couldn't affect the output. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, then also James went back and looked at his computer program. And just to make sure that we weren't fooling ourselves, he had the random number generator put out a timestamp for every bit that it sent out so that we knew exactly when that bit was being sent out. And then the uh, uh, controller random number generator also put out a timestamp telling us exactly when it decided that it was going to shut off the electronic random number generator. And so we, we checked genuinely that this was some sort of a pre-sentient effect as opposed to being something where we were fooling ourselves. So 
Then the next thing we did is we uh, wanted to see whether this effect would remain robust even when we uh, changed uh, bit rates or we changed other things in, in the process. And so by changing these things, we found the, the effect went away. It, it didn't seem to, to, to like different bit rates. And so we, we explored this for a little while. And then finally, after uh, uh, about a couple of weeks, we said, okay, let's just run the initial experiment again as, as a sanity check. So using the identical software and the identical hardware, we reran the initial uh, experiment, and there was no effect, no result. At that point, it dawned on me that what we were seeing was not the effect of one random number generator affecting another, but it was an experimenter effect. It was that James and I were so enthusiastic about this, and we really wanted to see uh, an anticipatory effect in the in the random number generator, and so we did see it. And then later, when various psychological phenomena probably took place in our heads and, and our consciousnesses, uh, we no longer saw that effect. Just to make a, a, a denouement here, uh, I later had another student uh, build his own random number generator uh, and carry out the same experiment, and he too saw an effect that worked initially and then it declined and went away. In correspondence to his enthusiasm and expectation of seeing an effect? Presumably. Uh, I don't know. I'd like to connect this to the Global Consciousness Project and, uh, and go somewhere with it, if I may. Please. If we look at the possible experimenter effect in the Global Consciousness Project and we look at the evident experimenter effect that took place in my double random number generator experiment. I think there's a different way to interpret this. And that is something that I'm now calling cybotics, uh, where the idea is to use psi to make uh, a robot of, of a particular kind. So with the global consciousness experiment, I believe that Roger Nelson did affect it with his intention. But the effect is a very interesting and subtle one. He has affected it in the sense that he's programmed it to carry out the function that he wants. So, yes, Peter Bansell is correct that Roger Nelson's intention has affected these things, but I believe that Roger Nelson is also correct that it is measuring a global consciousness. He's programmed it, and this is he's now made it into a robot of sorts, which he programmed with his intention. Similarly, in the double random number generator experiment, I believe that the subject random number generator did, in fact, sense its own demise and anticipate it. Why? Because we, the experimenters, had programmed it to do that with our intention. And so this opens up the idea of using psi to program instruments or machines to do things that we couldn't otherwise do. You can imagine programming a, a, a machine to look on very, very short timescales that we wouldn't ordinarily be able to, or to 
give you microscopic effects to show microscopic things that you couldn't. For example, let's say that you want to look at the structure of a molecule or uh, some tiny hidden uh, object, and then you have a pr an electronic random number generator that spews out bits that are put into a computer, and then these bits are later used to make a raster scan across the screen. So every time there's a one, there's a black dot, and every time there's a zero, a white dot. And you can mm -hmm. then use this random bit stream to create an image. And if you use your intention to say, I want this image to be uh, one of this particularly tiny structure that I wouldn't ordinarily be able to see, we've now, in a sense, created a robot that can do, that can do our bidding. The latter example that I gave is not as far-fetched as it might seem, because we did a, a, a very rudimentary experiment of something along those lines, and we got something that was statistically significant, surprisingly. I'd be interested to see that. Is that um, are you going to be presenting that this year at SSE? Uh, probably I will. This was some preliminary data that uh, a student found in, in his uh, classroom project a number of years ago. And I really would like to carry it through a lot more rigorously. So I've got to decide whether I'll show the preliminary data or wait till we get a more rigorous set of data. I'm not sure that I understand this picture creating thing exactly. Could you uh, summarize it one more time? So the idea is that we're using our mind to create a bit stream from a, an electronic random number generator that is recorded in a computer. And then later, when that bit stream is used to make a raster scan image, it produces an image of what it is you want. Right, I see. And presumably you could do this to ask any conceivable question. Exactly, exactly. Um, That's extraordinary. Uh, and what would be the limits of the kinds of questions that you could ask? Uh, beats me. <laughs> I guess we'll find out if you uh, do this experiment. Right. Now, this does require being able to direct one's intention very effectively. And uh, as we know from electronic random number generator experiments, that's a hard thing to do. You, know, you get it right some of the time, you get it wrong a lot of the time. So we've got to develop techniques to improve this. Uh, one thing we know from experimentation is that people who are very practiced at directing their mind, such as yogis and so on, who meditate a lot, are much better than that than, than uh, you or I might be. Yeah, I believe they've been able to show that in my matter experiments at IONS. Uh, I think Dean Radin carried out experiments where he was trying to get people to influence the behavior of an interferometer, and he found that he had really quite extraordinary effects when he employed uh, participants who had spent 20 years of their life practicing attentional training and then much more ordinary effects when uh, someone like you and I uh, attempted it, assuming that you're not a long-time meditator, I'm not I don't want to presume. <laughs> but that alone is enough to make me want to uh, take up meditation a lot more seriously than I have.
Yeah. So this effect that you're talking about, it's not just an alternative theory about psi effects. Presumably, if it's real, it's happening everywhere, including the rest of science. So how much of science do you think is uh, sort of infected by this effect? For example, the social sciences and uh, psychological experiments, to my knowledge, they're sort of undergoing a replication crisis at the moment. Is that an effect of people looking uh, critically at psychological experiments where uh, perhaps initially the psychologists or the researchers were enthusiastic about what they were looking at, uh, but then when it's attempted to be reproduced by uh, an independent researcher without the same uh, level of investment, the effects end up being smaller or uh, maybe they don't even show up at all? Right. How can we know if this is due to uh, some sort of a, a, a psychic effect. Jonathan Schooler, a professor at the University of California in Santa Barbara, has studied in great detail uh, the decline effect and uh, th these sorts of unexplained phenomena that we're talking about. And he, as far as I know, has not attributed it to psi phenomena in his mainstream publications, but he has come and talked to uh, the Society for Scientific Exploration and uh, made it quite clear that he believes that may well be what's happening. I want to bring you back to the question I asked you earlier about before you talked about your experiments with the uh, two REGs. I asked uh, to what extent did you think that the fact that there's a psychological correspondence between our minds and the behavior of the world, to you at this point, taking into account the experimenter effect and the sort of intractable role of our expectations, does this sort of lead you more in the direction of thinking that mind in some fundamental sense uh, is perhaps an essential ingredient of reality? So my description of the double random number generator experiment in which I tried to get rid of the human element was an attempt to show that we really don't need that sort of uh, apparently fuzzy thinking that you just presented. And, <laughs> it, and it failed. It failed dramatically. In fact, I can now state unequivocally that there is an effect of consciousness that is not simply a materialistic effect in physical mechanisms around us. And so I've now retreated to the position that, yes, it does look like those people who are saying consciousness is fundamental. Well, it looks like they've actually got something there. Yeah, and, and perhaps there's still a rigorous way of thinking about this. Perhaps we can include qualitative interiors or subjectivity in some sense into our model of reality, and it can be quite rigorous. Absolutely. I, I was being a little tongue-in-cheek there. Um, <laughs> once we identify what the issue is uh, and we put our minds to it, we can certainly come up with some good experimentation and, and good studies of it. And I believe that in some ways... Uh, psi researchers are the ones who are leading the way here. And just to, I just want to bring something in here just so um, for the sake of our audience. So since some of our audience may be maybe even completely new to psi effects, uh, perhaps we should just point out that humans aren't the only species that have apparently demonstrated psi 
abilities. Rupert Sheldrake's work comes to mind, dogs that apparently know when their owners are coming home. And I think animals have also been able to produce my matter effects. That's I'm, right. Uh, thinking of an experiment that was carried out at one point by a French researcher, um, Pioc, I believe his name was, with baby chicks. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that experiment? Uh, is that the one where the chicks were able to influence, uh, was it a, a heat source to provide heat for them when it got cold? I think, I think it was actually a candle on top of an REG. So I think chicks were bonded to an REG that right. was set up to move around randomly based on its output. And it was a bit like one of those room cleaning robots, which just sort of takes a random path around an enclosure. Yes. And so this REG was set up randomly to roam around this area. And there's a chick enclosure uh, off to one side. And the experiment showed that this moving REG spent a disproportionate amount of time in proximity to the chick enclosure because... Presumably, uh, I mean, the way that this was interpreted was that this was an intention effect of the chicks to keep their, uh, what they perceived to be their mother close to them, or maybe this warmth of this candle. Yes. Uh, How would your interpretation of these effects map onto this kind of study? Is this an experimenter effect on the part of the researcher? <laughs> uh, good question. Um, so just to, to add, before answering that, to add to what you said, uh, there are also ex- uh, experiments where finches have shown precognitive effects, uh, and even an experiment where possibly uh, an earthworm is showing uh, some sort of a precognitive uh, response, a lot like the Spottiswood and May experiment with the uh, to vibrations, horn. wasn't it? Yes, to vibrations. Uh, so certainly humans are not alone in exhibiting these effects of consciousness. Um, is this, do you think, a possible way of inferring consciousness onto other things? Could a psi experiment serve as a kind of test of sentience? Um, so you asked a very good question. You said, is this evidence that they have the sort of consciousness that produces psi, or are they simply a vessel through which the experimenter can produce psi effects. There are a series of experiments by Cleve Baxter in which he looks at plants and has hooked them up to what's essentially a lie detector apparatus to uh, measure their response to environmental effects around them, to the suffering of other plants and so on. And he found very strong effects from these plants. I am skeptical. Uh, I believe he saw what he said he saw, but uh, was he actually seeing the plant producing this effect, or was the plant essentially just a random number generator? And uh, was he then just seeing a reflection of, of what he expected? And it's very difficult to distinguish whether we are in fact seeing an experimenter effect or whether there is a consciousness to the plant itself. This reminds me of a story uh, regarding the Dalai Lama. So the Dalai Lama went through uh, the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab, the Pear Lab, at the end of which he asked Bob John, the director of the lab, if Bob had any questions for him, for the Dalai Lama. And Bob asked, 
the Dalai Lama, whether the random number generator sitting in front of them, was conscious. The Dalai hmm. Lama's response was fascinating. He said, if we regard them as conscious, then they are conscious. It's as if we can bless an otherwise inanimate object with consciousness, and then it gives the characteristics of being conscious. So when you ask the question as to whether a, a plant or an animal is showing consciousness or just showing an experimenter effect, perhaps on a fundamental level, there's no difference. That really the consciousness that any of us show is something that we are given by being part of our society of, of living creatures. Okay, so you seem to be saying that there's some kind of uh, consensus reality, which is attributing things with consciousness that it expects to have it? Uh, yes, I'm a little uh, uneasy with the use of consensus reality there, uh, right. in the sense that it's something very profound, it's something very deep. Uh, mm. uh, you're asking the question, what is the nature of, of being alive? What is the nature of consciousness at its core level? And do we have the answer? Are we, are we like uh, the prisoners in Plato's cave wall? So, you know, Plato had Socrates describing people who were chained to the uh, wall of a cave and all their life, all they could do was see what was happening on a blank wall. And what was happening on that blank wall were just shadows from some unseen light source. And uh, they didn't know what was happening. Do we know what's happening? Yeah. Does our consciousness in any way reach out and uh, make contact with actual uh, truths about the world? Or is everything that we know entirely metabolized through our human experience? And we don't really know reality as it is in itself. I guess a question for you would be, do you think that science can somehow expand to include this interior dimension of reality that we experience as our own minds and as consciousness? It, it's, a, it's a difficult question because perhaps all of our experimentation is, is not giving us the truth, but only a, a reflection of it, then you might go a step farther and say, well, do we have any access to fundamental truth? And I would say, maybe we do. Maybe we do. And the access that we have is through some sort of direct knowing. So through meditation or through some uh, sort of information that's planted in our minds by channeling or by some other, other mechanism, uh, maybe that is a direct truth. Maybe that is a real knowing. And can science access that? Well, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, just in the way that uh, we use a galvanic skin response to measure our response to emotionally stimulating phenomena, maybe some point, at some point we'll be able to monitor our brain functioning with sufficient precision to be able to see the consciousness imprints that are uh, happening all the time onto our brain. And in that way, we'll have 
some sort of a less subjective view of this of this fundamental truth maybe yeah there have been scholars who've uh, pointed out that there do seem to be these correspondences between states of oneness and totality and interconnection in mystical experiences or transpersonal experiences and uh, the way that quantum physics describes the world in a very fundamental sense as interconnected and uh, holistic and uh, and maybe mind involving in some important sense and so some people have pointed out that it seems that this outer path of science of trying to understand reality from the outside and perhaps this correspondingly internal science that's been developed in uh, contemplative traditions is in some sense converging on the same essential description of reality. I mean, what do you make of all of that? Uh, I agree with the way that you said it, that there are some physicists who, who are following this up. I'm fairly conservative guy when it comes to science and I don't want to go there until we have some sort of a prediction that can be falsified in the uh, sense that Poplar meant it. In other words, if we don't have an experiment that we can examine and show is wrong, then we haven't said anything is right. And I don't think we're even close to that sort of a quantum mechanical description of our emotional and conscious response to be able to, to make a, a strong connection. So in my mind, yes, that may be true, but it, it's pure speculation at this point. Right. So for something to count as scientific, it needs to be testable. And there's not an easy way of testing these hypotheses in a precise way. Uh, that's right. And if somebody comes up with a good way to test it precisely, all power to them. I, I, I will... I'll jump aboard, but right now I'm hesitant. So uh, you're someone that's devoted a lot of passion into looking at anomalies, things which seem to challenge prevailing scientific assumptions. If it turns out that effects like mind-matter interaction are real, there's going to be some pretty profound implications uh, for science and presumably a lot of opportunity to learn new things. So... Why do you think it is that studying anomalies uh, is still surrounded by this taboo, especially when there's so much potential insight to be gained? Uh, as you know probably better than I, as a people, we've undergone a shift from a idealistic or idealism perspective to a materialistic perspective in the Enlightenment and so on. And so... The idea that there may be a greater reality than what we experience in our material world is something that sounds like fuzzy thinking, old-fashioned thinking, uh, soft-minded religious thinking uh, to a lot of people. They just don't want to go there. And we don't change our minds very easily as, as, as a species. Once we have a particular mindset, we just don't want to change it. And so I think that's one of the big reasons that uh, uh, this investigation of psi phenomena has only taken place uh, on the fringes. 
Another reason, which I think is more legitimate, has to do with the lack of a theory. Usually, if you look in, in uh, new science, when someone proposes a new idea, if it doesn't seem to have any theory that supports it, then it's very difficult for people to accept that. Uh, for example, when Wegener in the 1920s proposed that uh, the continents drifted uh, together or apart, that was rejected out of hand because people saw no mechanism. They saw uh, continents as being fixed uh, on the earth, and there was no way that these fixed objects could move. It really happened that only after evidence for tectonic plate shift were found uh, many years later, almost 50 years after Wegener proposed uh, continental drift, only after there was some sort of a theory that supported the idea of shifting continents were people ready to accept the idea that, in fact, they did shift. And so maybe with, with these parapsychological phenomena, we do need a theory that, that, that makes some sense. Unfortunately, it seems to me that this theory is going to have to involve consciousness, and a theory of consciousness is going to be long in coming. Yeah. I want to see if I can't squeeze any more advice out of you for people who are fascinated by this kind of anomalies research and maybe considering pursuing a career in this area or in these areas. What do you have? I have the uh, exact right advice here. Uh, when I was young, I wanted to write fiction. And one day I asked my mother, should I be a fiction writer? And she answered, no. And then she added, if you really want to do it, you'll do it despite my having said no. <laughs> and <laughs> so I give the same answer here. Do you want to, uh, if, if somebody says, I, I want to uh, be a psi researcher, my answer is no. Then I'll follow that answer by saying, this is absolutely fascinating. This is really the key to uh, how life and the world seem to work on a fundamental level. We've got to examine this. It's just uh, the implications are tremendous. Even the understandings for our personal lives and synchronicity and how we work are, are a huge. And ultimately, the effects on science are going to be huge. So we've got to study this. It's fascinating. We've got to get into it. So my advice to you is don't listen to me. Go ahead and do it if you really want to. That's interesting that you mentioned uh, synchronicity there. Um, I didn't necessarily have you pegged for someone that would have accounted on that. I, I, but to me, I guess as I understand or think about this research more and more, it does seem to have more of the character of synchronicity than it was first apparent to me. There's not really a distinction between the occurrence of synchronicity and, I guess, the synchronistic occurrence of an effect in a psi experiment. I, I agree there is no distinction. Psi doesn't just turn on when you want to turn it on. It's involved in the way that the world is woven together on a fundamental structure. And uh, those strands of, 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 that weave together this, this substrate uh, are the same strands that give rise to synchronicity, certainly. 
Mm. Okay, well, Garrett, uh, it's been a real pleasure to have this conversation with you. Where can people find out more about your research and what you do? So uh, if you just Google my name, I'll, I'll pop up all over the place. So that's Garrett Modell. Um, and if you want to take a look at my Psy research, uh, I have a website that is separate from the mainstream research at the university. And the name of my lab is the Siphon Lab, P-S-I-P-H-E-N, all, that's all one word, lab. And so it's at, uh, the, the website is siphon.colorado.edu. And if people are interested in the experimental effects that you've been talking about today, uh, you're going to be presenting your ideas uh, at the SSE conference this year, which I believe is in Vegas, which is a, a change of scene from Boulder, right? Uh, yes. This SSE conference, I hope, is going to be a particularly interesting one. Uh, it's taking place June 6th through 10th, uh, 2018, in Las Vegas. And in particular, uh, for this uh, conference, I proposed the program be about the applications of psi phenomena. And so we're going to be looking not just at what exists, but how we can use it. We've just completed the, the program. There, uh, there's a fascinating slate of speakers, and I, I guarantee whoever attends will be blown away. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like a very fertile environment to discuss cybotics. So yeah, it seems as if you've constructed yourself a perfect platform. <laughs> I did. It was not unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's going to be in Vegas this year. So, and it's usually in Boulder, right? It's I buried all over the place. We, we had it in Boulder uh, for several years in a row, but, but we are moving all over the place for these conferences. Well, Garrett, thanks so much for sharing your time with us today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Uh, your questions are endlessly intriguing. Okay, thank you. Bye. Goodbye. Hello, friends. Thank you for joining us today at Waking Cosmos. Please let us know in the comments what you thought about today's conversation. Does Sai shine light on the mystery of consciousness? As usual, I'm looking forward to chatting with you in the comments. If you enjoyed today's episode, now's a perfect time to subscribe, give us a like or a nice rating, Share this episode with your friends and remember that you can support us through our Patreon page through the link in the description. Okay, my friends, you've been listening to Waking Cosmos, where we explore the nature of consciousness, reality, and life's place in the universe. I'm Adrian Nelson. Until next time.